The destinations discussed in today's episode are on the traditional lands of the Paul Gusset, Quinnipiac, Wappinger, Tunxis, Wangunks, Nipmuc, and Pocumtuck peoples, and the Wabanaki Confederacy. Welcome aboard the Voyages podcast. I'm John Orkut, and today we're traveling to America's eastern seaboard to delve into a topic that's been oddly absent from the podcast so far, dinosaurs. In a post-Jurassic Park world, dinomania is a thing we take for granted. Of course every kid goes through a dinosaur phase, and of course we can drop a scientific name like Velociraptor and assume people will know what we're talking about. But it wasn't always this way. Early in the study of fossils, it was mammals and marine reptiles that were in the limelight. That began to change in the mid-19th century as tantalizing chunks of giant reptiles were uncovered in southern England. It was there that the word dinosaur, meaning terrible lizard, was coined by Sir Richard Owen. Tune back into my episode on Darwin in London for more on Owen and Victorian paleontology. It was on the other side of the Atlantic, though, that dinomania really took off, as new, often more complete, and impressive fossils were found in the badlands of the U.S. and Canadian West. These fossils found a home further east, in the great Gilded Age museums that sprang up from Chicago to Boston and D.C. to Ottawa. The overwhelming size and general weirdness of the skeletons that were mounted for display in these museums stoked enthusiasm for dinosaurs, which have remained icons of nature and science ever since. Maybe the most impressive testament to the power of dinosaurs is not a skeleton, but a monumental work of paleo art. It was painted on the walls of Yale's Peabody Museum between 1942 and 1947. As war raged across the globe, a Russian immigrant inspired by Renaissance frescoes created his most famous work, one that not only celebrated dinomania, but would help shape it. At 110 feet in length and covering 350 million years of Earth history, Rudolf Zallinger's The Age of Reptiles is on an appropriately epic scale, its dinosaurs and other extinct animals shown at nearly life size. The animals featured on it are nearly all from North America, and their names read as a who's who of dinosaur paleontology. Allosaurus, Stegosaurus, Triceratops, Tyrannosaurus, whose upright stance is said to have inspired the design of Godzilla, and wallowing in a swamp near the center of the mural, and mirroring the skeletal centerpiece of the museum's great hall, the long-necked, gigantic Brontosaurus. These names are as familiar today as they were in the 1940s, or as they were when they were first exhibited at the turn of the 20th century, so much so that they're easy to take for granted. But each of these names has a story behind it. These stories might be about the biology of the animal itself, reflecting something unusual about its anatomy, or the environment or age in which it lived. Often, the stories are as much about the people that found and described the fossils as they are about the animals themselves. And of course, especially when you're dealing with organisms as popular as dinosaurs, names can inspire both pride and surprisingly bitter feuds among scientists and the public alike. To understand why we name dinosaurs the way we do, and the human drama that can get caught up in them, we don't even need to leave the Peabody Museum whose founder gave the world one of the most popular dinosaur names, 
and its most notorious taxonomic debate. We've already met the protagonist of this story, the star of both Zallinger's mural and the Peabody's Great Hall, Brontosaurus excelsus. Sauropods, the group of long-necked dinosaurs that includes Brontosaurus, are enormous. Not only are they the largest land animals ever to have lived, they push the limits of how big land animals can even get. They deserve appropriately monumental names, and the describer of Brontosaurus, Yale's Othniel C. Marsh, didn't disappoint. Since the 18th century, there have been very rigorous rules for naming new species, the most important of which is that every species name must be included within a larger grouping of organisms known as a genus, and that both these names must be reported together as a two-word phrase. We, for example, are members of the genus Homo, which includes several extinct species, and us, the species Homo sapiens. Dinosaur names follow these same rules, though most people drop the species name when talking about them in casual conversation, with the major exception of the most famous of all species names, Tyrannosaurus rex. When bones of a huge new dinosaur were sent to Marsh from Wyoming, he recognized that he had something entirely new on his hands, different enough from any existing dinosaur to warrant a new genus and species name. He coined the genus Brontosaurus, meaning thunder lizard, and unquestionably one of the best scientific names ever conceived, and the species name Brontosaurus excelsus, reflecting that the animal excelled all other currently known dinosaurs in size. The story might have ended there, if not for one of paleontology's most thorny problems and Marsh's fatal flaw. The problem with naming a species based on fossils is that the most widely used definition of what a species is doesn't apply. For most people working on modern organisms, the best, though by no means only, way to recognize a species is by seeing whether a group of organisms can breed and produce offspring that are also capable of breeding. If they can, they're a species. If not, they're two different species. Until time machines are invented, though, we can't go back in time to see whether dinosaurs and other extinct animals could mate with one another, so we have to use other lines of evidence. The most important of these is anatomy. If two individuals look very similar to one another, we can assume that they're the same species. For this system to work, we need a single reference specimen that all future discoveries can be compared to, known as a type specimen. You can only have one type specimen per species, and if someone later recognizes that two separate species are actually the same, whichever was named first is the name that sticks. This is where Marsh's flaw comes into play. In the late 19th century, he was caught up in a bitter and long-standing feud with another paleontologist, Edward Drinker Cope and their vitriolic rivalry should absolutely be the focus of a future episode. Both Marsh and Cope played pivotal roles in the history of paleontology and evolutionary biology, and they produced a flood of new species, due not only to the rich American fossil record, but to each man seeing species names as the benchmark for comparing himself to his rival. This rush to publish new species led to more than a few oversights, made worse in Marsh's case by his paranoia and refusal to share information with any of his colleagues he saw as being in league with Cope. Two years before he named Brontosaurus, he had named another, smaller sauropod, Apatosaurus ajax. It was not until the early 20th century that another paleontologist, Elmer Riggs of Chicago's Field Museum, pointed out that the type specimen of Apatosaurus was a juvenile, that it looked an awful lot like a smaller Brontosaurus, that the two animals were probably the same species, and that, since it was named first, we should call the animal Apatosaurus. 
The evidence was all on Riggs' side, but he was widely ignored, most egregiously by the Peabody Museum, which kept on calling their skeleton Brontosaurus. This wasn't a great look for science, which is, after all, supposed to be unbiased and evidence-based. In taxonomy, the identification and classification of species matters. If we know we're looking at a juvenile and an adult of the same species, for example, we can start asking and answering questions about how long extinct organisms might have grown and developed. Likewise, ecologists care a lot about sauropods, animals in which one individual might have had the impact of a herd of elephants. When asking how ancient landscapes could have supported such titans, and how they interacted with that landscape, knowing how many species there were at any given time is a crucial bit of information. Had the animal in question not been one of the largest ever to walk the earth, this debate never would have registered on the public radar, and Riggs' work would have probably been accepted with minimal debate. But people care about dinosaurs and the names we call them. If you're my age, you'll remember the public disappointment, sometimes bordering on outrage, in the later decades of the 20th century when museums finally started relabeling their skeletons as Apatosaurus. You may also remember the jubilation a few years ago when a paper looking at evolutionary relationships between sauropods showed that Brontosaurus and Apatosaurus, while very closely related, might in fact be separate genera, and Marsh's thunder lizard was reborn. The jury is still very much out about whether or not Brontosaurus lives, but it's certainly true that in no other group of animals would you see such a strong public reaction to the naming of genera and species. And that's a good thing. Paleontology has always been a gateway field for science, and dinosaurs are its greatest ambassadors. While dinomania can manifest itself in surprisingly ugly disputes about names, it can have a very positive side as well. Dinosaurs can get people excited about science and can serve as introductions to topics like evolution, climate change, and extinction. The study of dinosaurs can model the scientific process and critical thinking. And increasingly, dinosaurs can serve as symbols of local or regional pride, getting people engaged with their home's natural heritage. This heritage is often surprising, as is the case along New England's Connecticut River, which flows south through Massachusetts and empties into the Atlantic not far east of Yale. The dinosaurs found here aren't household names like Brontosaurus or Apatosaurus, but just like their larger and younger relatives, their fossils tell stories about the ancient world and about how we study it. Two of these dinosaurs were recently pitted against one another in an election to determine which species should represent the Bay State's fossil heritage as the official state dinosaur of Massachusetts. To talk about these species, the stories they tell, and what exactly it means to have a state dinosaur, I'm joined by returning guest and Massachusettsan Tara Laporte. Hi, John. I'm Tara Lapori, and I am a PhD student at the Department of Integrative Biology at University of California, Berkeley. And I'm also affiliated with the University of California Museum of Paleontology. And I grew up in Massachusetts. So I grew up just outside of Boston. And this uh, whole idea of discussing a Massachusetts state dinosaur is really near and dear to my heart. So I'm super excited to be here talking about the uh, potential winner for the state dinosaur designation. It just has to now move forward. The bill just has to be voted upon. So uh, very excited. Yeah, and, and we'll, we'll talk about that process, I'm sure, in a moment. But for, for the moment, let's, let's sort of set the scene. There were, there were two main candidates for this 
Massachusetts state dinosaur, uh, both of which are, are the same age and both of which I guess are found in sort of roughly the same areas. Um, so let's maybe start by setting the scene a little bit uh, and talking about Massachusetts in the, in the early Jurassic period and sort of what that, what that landscape might look like and how, how we know about it because it's sort of a weird fossil record in many ways. Yeah, so growing up in Massachusetts, uh, I actually didn't know that there was any rock of Mesozoic age in the state uh, until probably about high school, college age. And uh, there is a really nice exposure of uh, a part of sediment, uh, a, a group called the, the Newark Supergroup that uh, is exposed in Western Massachusetts and in Connecticut. And so these rocks are largely uh, early Jurassic and late Triassic in, uh, in age, uh, mudstones and siltstones and uh, sandstones. And they would have been formed in ancient mudflats. So if you can imagine next to a source of water, a river or a lake and large uh, expanses of mud and silt that dinosaurs and other creatures would have been walking across. And just to zoom out a little bit to see, you know, where would Massachusetts have been in the time period of these dinosaurs in the early Jurassic, uh, the Atlantic Ocean would have just been forming. It would have been a little sliver of, uh, of, of ocean. Uh, there would have been many continents, all the continents kind of squished together and the supercontinent that that formed called Pangaea was starting to break apart. And so in Western Massachusetts, what would become the Western part of the state, there are a number of what we call rift valleys if you think of the landscape as pulling apart and, and these pieces of rock kind of breaking apart as the landscape uh, is, is, is drifting, then these rift valleys start to form uh, very lush tropical environments where we would have mud flats, we would have uh, uh, volcanic activity, and we would have these shallow lakes and rivers. Yeah, I think maybe a good modern comparison might be, I guess there's a couple that spring to mind. One would be uh, the Great Basin in Nevada. The other might be the, the Rift Valley, the Great Rift Valley in Africa, where you have a similar sort of mix of volcanoes. And then uh, in the valley floor, a lot of uh, sort of lakes and, and, and waterways. Uh, and as you said, lots of these sort of sediments that are that are pretty good for, for preserving lots of different kinds of fossils. But one of the cool things about the uh, what's now the Connecticut River Valley uh, is that it's not just preserving the, the sort of bones um, and, and actual parts of, of bodies of dinosaurs, what we usually think of when we think of fossils, but has this really, not, not totally unique, but, but really unusual and really cool series of uh, trackways, right? So can you talk a little bit about what some of those look like? Yeah, so the, the uh, preservation of trackways, especially dinosaur tracks in Western Massachusetts and in Connecticut is really incredible and uh, because this is so early in the so-called age of dinosaurs where where dinosaurs were really diversifying in their evolution uh, it's really interesting to see how the trackways reflect or or don't you know depending uh, the the composition of those those early groups of, of dinosaurs and the thing I really love about trackways is even though we can learn a lot about bones we can actually, really look at tracks as evidence of behavior 
looking at almost a snapshot of the living uh, behavior of these, these ancient organisms, which is super cool. Uh, there are a few really famous sites that I'll, I'll just mention briefly. In Connecticut, there is a museum called Dinosaur State Park. There's actually a building, kind of this cool geodesic dome that was built over some trackways. Um, the Amherst College Vineski Museum of Natural History has a really wonderful collection of tracks uh, collected by uh, Edward Hitchcock, who is a, a, an instrumental scientist uh, who also was obsessed with tracks uh, in the uh, 1800s. And then there's a site in Holyoke, Massachusetts, that's just off the side of Route 5 in Holyoke that is managed by the trustees of reservations. Uh, so it's a free site that you can just pull up by the side of the road. There's some signage and there's some really cool tracks there um, that were actually studied uh, all the way going back to Edward Hitchcock, but also uh, John Ostrom in the 1970s uh, published a, a, a kind of a wave making study on uh, the potential uh, behavior of those dinosaurs uh, walking around at that particular site. Um, and I just want to give a shout out. There's been an update to that study uh, done by a colleague of mine and a friend uh, named Patrick Getty and others. So um, yeah, the, one of the great things about science is that it's always uh, changing and we're always kind of moving the envelope forward with what we understand or uh, revising potentially what we thought we understood. So tracks are great for that reason. Um, they really are like a little snapshot in the behavior of these, these animals. Uh, Potentially. Yeah, and I will I will vouch for having been to, to several dinosaur trackways, including some of these. That there there really is nothing quite quite like visiting one of these dinosaur trackways. They it's pretty much all of us have probably seen a dinosaur skeleton mounted in a museum at some point, and they are really cool and amazing. But nothing sort of trans transports you back to that landscape in this case, two hundred million years ago, like literally walking in the footsteps of of dinosaurs um, and, and actually having this firsthand evidence of, of how they behaved and how they interacted with their environment. I've been to the one in Connecticut, Dinosaur State Park. It sounds, it is really cool. You can also, I know, make uh, plaster casts of some of the trackways there. And I still, still use the one I made back in like high school uh, as part of my teaching collection when I talk about fossils in general, but in sort of particular uh, trace fossils. So these fossils that don't, don't preserve the actual body of an organism, but, but preserve remnants of it uh, or traces of it as the name suggests. Yeah, I've actually got a couple on my wall. Um, oh, nice. I know our listeners won't be able to see it, but I've got a, uh, a type of track called Eubrontes and another one called Gralator. And these are special names that are given to trackways separate from the animal that would have made them because for better or worse, unless the foot of the dinosaur is stuck in that trackway, we can only make some educated guesses about the size and shape of the, the foot and say, well, okay, what dinosaur could have made this particular foot shape? Um, but knowing with exact certainty is, is, is tricky. Uh, and the tracks that I have casts of here on my wall are um, actually from when I was, uh, I was working on um, moving the, the, the track collection, uh, the research collection of a, a track researcher named Martin Lockley, who uh, mm -hmm. is an emeritus professor over at uh, University of uh, Colorado in Denver. So um, that collection is now at uh, University of Colorado Boulder. 
So yeah, uh, you just never know. I, I always kind of joke that trackways kind of follow me my entire life. <laughs> um, you know, these dinosaur tracks, whether I'm seeing them or they're, you know, I, I get a, a job, a stint doing something with them. So yeah, my, my current research is not on tracks, but I think I'll always have a special place uh, in my heart for them. So yeah, I mean, I don't work on dinosaurs at all. And I still think, yeah, there, there, there really is something special about, about these trackways. And we have them for animals other than dinosaurs as well in different parts of the world, of course. But the, the dinosaur ones really are impressive. Uh, and, and you raise a good point with the, with the naming of these things, that they have their whole specialized field of uh, what we call ichnotaxonomy, uh, these names that we applied to them. And I love some of the names for these Connecticut River Valley tracks. Yeah, Ubrantes and Growlator and Otazoam is another one that I really like. Uh, I don't know, they just sort of, some of those sort of like 19th century names that are, are totally like archaic and sort of weird Latin, but I don't know, they're just lots of fun to say. <laughs> yeah, Ubrantes means true thunder. I, which I, I think, love. You know, that's kind <laughs> of like, if I ever were to make a rock album, I just would call hmm. it like Ubrantes, you know, I don't know. So look out for that next. Yeah, <laughs> I will. Uh, I will. I will wait for that first album to true drop. True thunder. Yeah. And actually, speaking of, of Ubrontes, that's a great segue into what I wanted to talk about next. Uh, Ubrontes is already the, the state fossil of Connecticut. Uh, and I know Massachusetts also does have a state fossil. I think it's just dinosaur tracks sort of generally, right? Um, yeah, that's right. And I think actually, I have to go back and look at my list, but most states have a, have a state fossil of, of some kind. I know here in Washington, we're the Columbian mammoth. So I've got to Gotta give a shout out to that. You're down in California, which may have the best state fossil because you're a Smilodon, the saber-toothed cat. Uh, although uh, we do have a state dinosaur now, which was spearheaded true. by a number of friends in Southern California, and that's uh, Augustin Alophis. Yes. Uh, it's one of those names I never really say out loud, but yes. yeah, it's it's a <laughs> bit of a tongue twister. Uh, yeah, I, I saw I got to see that at the at the LA County Museum a couple of years ago, and they have a, a fantastic line of T-shirts where you can buy a shirt with Agustina Lopez surfing on it. Amazing! It's pretty great. I didn't get one for some reason. I'll have to go back when we can travel again. But at any rate, lots of states have have state fossils because you know every state, literally every state, has a fossil record that that they can and should be proud of. But a few states have gone one step further and are, and are naming state dinosaurs as well. So I think prior to this week, there were, I think, 12 states in the District of Columbia uh, had a state dinosaur. I'd have to go back and, and check those numbers. I may be a little off, but... Um, Sounds about right, just from it's, yeah. what I've gleaned. <laughs> Most states don't. Um, and so Massachusetts is sort of on the, the leading edge of this. So yeah, I guess a little talk a little bit about the, this process, because you've been involved with it at least, at least sort of tangentially, though I think in a, in a pretty, pretty involved way. So what, what's the sort of backstory here? What prompted this and, and sort of what was the process that, that is still unfolding uh, to get the state dinosaur named? Yeah, so there are a, a relatively smallish number of us who either grew up in Massachusetts or have ties to Massachusetts in our research and um, you know, may or may not live currently in the, the state right now who uh, you know, sort of got wrapped into this idea of, wow, there, there could be a Massachusetts state dinosaur and so um, through uh, a number of people who were working on this, including my friend Patrick Getty, I mentioned earlier, you know, I first came to be aware that Representative Jack Lewis, uh, who is representative over the district of Framingham, Massachusetts, uh, and Ashland, Massachusetts, Representative Lewis was uh, actually inspired to do this uh, kind of 
initiative to, to push forward a state dinosaur uh, by his kids and also just by, you know, the whole idea of, of, of trying to get something out in the news that was maybe a little inspiring and, uh, you know, not so depressing. <laughs> and uh, what a great opportunity to, to talk about science education. Oh, yeah. And, you know, in addition, also make something about legislation and, and bill writing uh, actually accessible and, and kind of fun. So, um, you know, I, I actually uh, ended up reaching out to Representative Lewis and just say, hey, you know, uh, you know, I also grew up in the state. If there's anything that I can do to help as a paleontologist, I'm happy to do so. And uh, he and I had a couple of conversations and I did a short interview with him and it's been all over the news. Uh, you know, it, it comes up on the nightly news, uh, actually, uh, yesterday when the announcement for the winner of the, uh, the poll, the public poll to determine the state fossil out of the two uh, competitors, my, my mom actually took a, a little video on, on her phone and said, oh, I, I saw this on the nightly news and mm -hmm. I know that you're involved in it. So, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of kind of fun. Um, and going back to that, that Mesozoic rock that preserves all of these wonderful trackways, dinosaur bones and fossil bone is actually comparatively very rare in those, those same rocks. So to have uh, two known dinosaur specimens is really special, even if they might not be the best specimens. And there's an interesting story about one of them um, kind of being lost that uh, we, can, we can get into. Uh, just having those fragmentary uh, dinosaur specimens. I mean, this is part of our natural history within the state. Yeah. I think it's it's really great for young learners, especially to to know about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I know in a lot of states that have that have designated a state fossil or a state dinosaur, uh, that that often is uh, very much a a true grassroots effort. That it's often like a, a classroom of kids learn that. You know, I think in our case, it was uh, as a school was being expanded, they found some mammoth bones. And so these kids put together this petition and, and uh, got the state legislature to, to designate the Columbian mammoth as our state fossil, which is, yeah, it's, it's great because it gets people excited about science uh, and paleontology in particular, and it gets people involved in, in politics, which I think is involved in that process. That is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's so cool. The fact that you know, young kids, learners can really get involved in what's going on in their state and uh, maybe maybe eventually have a little more of a of a stake in what's happening, you know, around them being civically engaged yep. is uh, is really cool. And of course, the science education. Um, if I if I had known, you know, that there were <laughs> dinosaurs in my state as a young person, I know at least my parents would have appreciated it. They would have had something else to talk to me about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah, well, I'm happy to talk about the, the two candidates. Yeah. And we do now as of yesterday have an official winner. So I don't know if we need a drum roll, but yeah. what I'll well, do is I'll, I'll introduce them and maybe our listeners can, can guess if they don't know. Yeah, and I will, I'll just say that there is some, uh, because both these dinosaurs were found in, in roughly the same area, um, they, they do both, some parts of their stories, I think, are very similar in that they are, are showing us something about this early evolution of dinosaurs before, you know, the big, you know, uh, Apatosaurus, Brontosaurus, whatever you want to call it, Allosaurus, Tyrannosaurus, Triceratops, these kind of really familiar giant dinosaurs that, that you know, any kid can rattle off. 
these predate those by a long ways. So uh, kind of the, the, the shared fossil heritage here is that this is a window into the, the early days of dinosaur evolution, um, which is really cool. And what's fun about these is they, they each represent two, not the two major branches of dinosaurs, I guess, but two of the major branches of dinosaurs. So yeah, I don't know which one you want to start with. Should we start with, well, I guess we don't want to say which one won yet. So I, I guess I'll let you pick. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, and keep yeah. some suspense here, I suppose. I know, right? We've got to keep our <laughs> listeners uh, uh -huh. here, yeah. you know, on the edge of their seat. Yeah, well, I would hate to if, tune out. <laughs> <laughs> well, if they haven't been, you know, really tuning into the um, the Massachusetts State Dinosaur uh, polling, and uh, there's been a social media uh, uh, kind of burst. There's a, a Facebook group called Massachusetts State Fossil or state dinosaur. And um, so uh, I'll just name these two dinosaurs. One is called Podokesaurus. And Podokesaurus is a little uh, creature would have come up maybe to, you know, maybe no more than my, my knee or so, maybe about the size of a, a big cat. And uh, it probably had feathers. It would have been a small meat eater with a very slender neck and a long tail. Uh, very similar to a dinosaur known as Coelophysis. If anyone's ever heard of Coelophysis, um, they might even be the same organism. <laughs> but uh, for what we know now, Podokesaurus is uh, the specimen from Massachusetts. So um, the uh, Podokesaurus specimen from Massachusetts has a really interesting story that I'll kind of just put a Put a, put a pin in for now and we'll come back to you. The other uh, competitor here, the contender for state dinosaur is a dinosaur called Anchisaurus. Anchisaurus with A-N-C-H-I is how that is spelled. And so Anchisaurus is, uh, you know, another smallish dinosaur that, uh, you know, probably wouldn't have been much larger, than, certainly not larger than me. And I'm, I'm five foot four. Um, and so, uh, Anchisaurus is, uh, a, was a herbivore, most likely, and was related to uh, some of the big long-necked dinosaurs, uh, the sauropod dinosaurs that um, are such uh, capturers of our imagination that, that would have come around later in the Jurassic period. Again, the, both of these dinosaurs would have been the very earliest Jurassic. Um, and so Anchisaurus uh, and Podokesaurus We've got Podokesaurus, the small feathery meat eater, and Anchisaurus, the kind of four-legged, uh, clawed-handed, long-necked, but not too long-necked uh, uh, herbivore. So yeah, with these two choices, uh, the public was asked to uh, vote and kind of share their, their thoughts on which one would win. And, and we, now, we now know. <laughs> we do. But before we reveal it, I, I think it's also important to point out that as, as with really any dinosaur name, um, there, there's some really cool kind of human stories uh, behind these names. And I think maybe the, the, the maybe the more interesting one uh, is involved with Podokosaurus. Can you talk a little bit about sort of who named it and, and uh, why Podokosaurus is actually maybe a little bit of a problem. You mentioned that it might be the same thing as Coelophysis. Why is it that we don't know that? <laughs> But we, we'll get to that. But I think it's very important first to talk about uh, who's responsible for naming Podokosaurus. Yes, who, Great who is responsible for all yeah. of our Podokosaurus problems? <laughs> um, yeah, so actually there's this really interesting story where uh, a woman uh, scientist, a paleontologist at Mount Holyoke College, uh, who is uh, 
professor in the geoscience department. Uh, in 1911, uh, she was able to describe Podokesaurus uh, as you know, the first description of this dinosaur known to, to uh, Western science. And um, so that to me, as a, as a fellow woman in science, that is a, kind of an inspirational story because of course at the, the turn of the, the century, there really were not uh, a lot of women, especially in paleontology who were at the forefront uh, of the field. Of course, there was discrimination and uh, really not a lot of opportunities. So to have um, Professor Minion Talbot describe this dinosaur, I think is really kind of a, a special piece of this, of this tale of Podokesaurus. Um, from what I understand, she had never described a dinosaur before and was um, not really sure if she could do it, but uh, had this, this great knowledge in geoscience and uh, was encouraged by another professor, Richard Swan Lull, who uh, Professor Lull was a trackway expert at the time and you know Richard Lull said hey why don't you try it just go ahead and so hooray you know I guess that boosted her confidence but uh, she did go ahead and describe the dinosaur and so she goes down in history as um, the first woman to name and describe a dinosaur which uh, at least in the western way of describing <laughs> dinosaurs so that's uh, that's that's really special. And um, so you said she was Professor Minion Talbot where did she teach I don't know if you mentioned yeah, Mount Holyoke College. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep, and so um, there is a little bit of a, of a tragic uh, ending to Podokosaurus, <laughs> uh, where the only known specimen was actually lost in a fire. It was over a, a, one of the winter holiday breaks. Uh, the building that housed much of the geology collection burned down uh, in uh, the, the 1910s somewhere around there and and so that that specimen was lost it couldn't be recovered from the building remains uh luckily there were a number of casts uh replicas that were made of that specimen uh there uh there is one uh that i know of at the yale peabody museum i i know there are others but i mm -hmm. i haven't really parsed out where they all are um maybe if some of our listeners know they can help us out maybe but um yeah, yeah, but uh, this is uh, this is sort of the the reason why we just don't know much more about Podokesaurus other than the remains that were found, and those remains are kind of fragmentary. You know, there's like a piece of the front of the dinosaur, a piece of the leg, but enough to describe this mm -hmm. dinosaur as as something potentially new. Um, similar to Coelophysis, which is another dinosaur. Yeah, and I, I'm, I remember seeing that cast specimen on display at Yale several years ago, and it, it, it's a shame. It looks like it was, especially for this part of the world, a pretty complete and pretty good specimen. Normally, I'd say, uh, you know, anyone who's listening to this can go to Yale and see this. You can't actually right now, uh, not just because of COVID, but because they're remodeling there their dinosaur hall, but I will also uh, put in a plug that I have no idea if when they reopen in a couple of years, uh, if Podokosaurus will be on display or not. But uh, I, I led off the intro to this episode by talking about the Age of Reptiles mural there, which is one of the more spectacular works of art you'll ever see. Uh, and mostly it's famous for this sort of giant, uh, you know, nearly full size, enormous dinosaurs on it. But uh, in one little corner, uh, uh, Rudolf Salinger did paint in Podokosaurus. I think it's the one like actual New England 
uh, dinosaur or, a, or a organism of any kind to make it into that mural. And you, you would never even know it was there if you weren't looking for it because it is so tiny compared to everything else. But that's yeah. maybe your best way to sort of experience <laughs> Podokosaurus since you can't actually see the original fossil, which is well, too bad. There, there are a number of fun looking uh, old fashioned models, uh, reconstructions of, of, of Podokosaurus that um, I know there's one at uh, uh, Mount Holyoke College and at Amherst nice. College as well. And so this sort of like little Coelophysis green, it's usually green, mm -hmm. like painted, uh, you know, uh, model is kind of cool. The, the specimen itself really wasn't that complete. You know, it just was, was kind of a chopped up uh, front and, and back um, of the dinosaur. There's no skull, um, unfortunately. Um, but you know what I, I think it makes me think of is um, the number of universities and colleges in Massachusetts and in the New England area, how many of them could potentially expand their field opportunities for students. If nothing else, there are trackways to be found. And of course, there are older invertebrate fossils uh, too. But, um, you know, part of why there haven't been too many uh, vertebrate skeletal fossils found in Massachusetts is that one is the preservation record for sure, but people sort of became discouraged uh, to look. And, and so I just wonder from an educational standpoint where the future of, of field work in New England is, is going. Of course, the tracks will always be um, garnering a good amount of attention, yes. but what else is there? Um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Ankysaurus. It's sort of, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm putting the, the, the foot on the, the pedal here with Podokosaurus for good reason, but, uh, but Ankysaurus, uh, maybe I'll just mention a couple of things, John, about the, the name there. Yeah, absolutely. It's got, it's got quite a story attached to it as well. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Ankysaurus, um, from what I understand, a number of, of, of better specimens, more well-preserved specimens are from Connecticut. But there, um, there have been, the, the type specimen is actually at Amherst College. Uh, type specimen is the specimen that is used to name and describe and sort of like the, 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 the singular specimen that folks go back to as the quote original. Uh, so that specimen is at Amherst College, I believe. And so there were a number of names that this dinosaur went through, um, including, uh, well, there's one called Megadactylus. Uh, and uh, Amphisaurus, but it turned out other animals had those names, so it had to be reverted uh, back to Ankysaurus. Um, there's even a, a little bit of a, of a kind of mix up with, with a, a dinosaur called Yaleosaurus. Uh, it's my but, favorite. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, but Ankysaurus became the, the, uh, the original uh, sort of name that stuck. And so um, I, I think that speaks to how we name the convention of naming scientific species and how sometimes, you know, people can make mistakes and think a name is really cool and some other creature somewhere else has that name. For example, Megadactylus, one of the earlier names of Ankysaurus, um, was already the name of a lizard. Yep. So somebody there had to change it uh, back to Ankysaurus. And uh, yeah, I, I guess, should we go ahead and, and tell our listeners now if, if they don't know already? Which I, one? I think we can, yes. <laughs> uh, I think there was a clear favorite between these yes. two. Yeah, so, so drum roll. Um, 
Padokasaurus is the winner of the poll that uh, went out to the community in Massachusetts. And so Representative Jack Lewis is putting forward uh, a series of two bills to uh, officially designate Padokasaurus uh, as the state dinosaur of Massachusetts. And, you know, I, I, I have to wonder, I mean, both of them are really charismatic. Um, do people just like feathers? Is that what it is? Like maybe like little feathery dinosaurs are just cooler? I, I guess. Maybe it's Holyoke, the, the Holyokeensis, mm -hmm. which means from Holyoke is part of the Podokosaurus's name. Yeah, um, one I'd like to think that Minion Talbot's story has, has some pull there as well. I think people I think also so. just like predatory things. <laughs> as someone who works on predatory mammals largely, I can vouch for this. Yeah, um, it looks like you could probably keep both of them as a fairly decent pet. Although I think yes. Podokosaurus would eat my cat. So yes, um, almost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the next step for this bill is to be uh, pushed forward through um, the Massachusetts uh, state representatives. I know I've emailed my uh, my my parents' constituent. Er, you know, my parents are constituents, so I've I've emailed those representatives and said, please support this bill. <laughs> um, so if anyone out there is listening and, and is a constituent in Massachusetts, um, you know, Representative Jack Lewis is putting this forward in the, the, the coming days. And so uh, the more people we can get to support this, um, I think the better off it'll, it'll be. Yeah, absolutely. I would like to think there isn't going to be much opposition to it, but I suppose you really never know in politics. So, yeah, um, yeah. I think one of the interesting pieces of feedback that I've been seeing on the social media feeds, uh, especially for the, for Representative Lewis, is um, especially now during uh, the pandemic, folks have have sort of I think been a little confused as to you know this this reality that politicians can in fact focus on more than one thing at a time. And so people, I've seen some comments like, oh no, like, can't you focus on more important things? And that to me seems a little defeatist, maybe a little sad, you know, just in my opinion, um, because of course there are important things going on uh, in, in the legislature, but uh, why not have a little, a little science education and a little joy? Absolutely. Kind of yeah. I, I think just doing something, something that people can enjoy and appreciate is worth doing in the middle of a pandemic. And I also would argue that, you know, the natural heritage of your state is not an unimportant thing. It's, it's all part of, uh, of our shared experience and wherever we live. Uh, even though none of us were around 200 million years ago. But <laughs> yeah. um, again, there's all these human stories attached to it that, that, that sort of weaved, inter interweave to make this sort of natural and cultural tapestry that I think is worth celebrating, especially Absolutely. during a pandemic. Absolutely. And John, think of the children. Yes. <laughs> Won't someone please. But um, seriously, like, like, I think, I think that those kinds of responses that are in the negative speak to the job that we have as science educators and that legislatures, legislators have to um, make sure that people know that there's many, there are many things that we can do to, to place science as an importance in our society. And, you know, it doesn't need to be at the expense of anything else. Absolutely. That's my that's my soapbox. I'll come off of it now. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think it's a very a good soapbox to climb. Um, so, yeah, as I said earlier, I think I guess now 13 states. Uh, again, my numbers may be a little off uh, and D.C. have state dinosaurs. What that means is that odds are you live in a state that doesn't have a state dinosaur. So uh, if this has sort of piqued your curiosity about what 
what kind of dinosaurs might have lived in your state. And in fairness, not every state did have dinosaurs uh, that, that lived in it, though I'm waiting for someone, I'm waiting for the first person who proposes just some bird as the state dinosaur <laughs> of a state. Technically, yes, we yeah. do already have a state dinosaur. <laughs> it is the black-capped chickadee, the state bird. Okay, okay. For it's you a good state bird. For you, it is. For you technical <laughs> folks out there, that would be the state avian dinosaur. Yes. <laughs> yes, that, that's a rabbit hole of dinosaur taxonomy. We probably don't need to to dive too far down, but uh, I'm still waiting for the first person to, I, I, I will I will tip my hat to them. I, I appreciate that. But uh, but at any rate, many states do have dinosaurs, even states, we, we have a single dinosaur from Washington. Um, it's not even named. And I've heard people talk about designating it the state dinosaur. So it's the kind of thing that people can get excited about. And I, again, it, it's a way of, of making people aware of you know, you're, you're a, a, por a portion of your state's heritage, a lot of people may not have been familiar with. So I think it's great. I, I love to see, I, I love to see the response that this got uh, through social media. Yeah, um, I want to say really like excited over 35,000 votes or something. That number could be wrong, but it was, it was in the tens of thousands. And I think that, you know, that speaks to the popularity of this. And, and, and speaking with Representative Lewis, um, you know, I remember him saying that he just, was so surprised at how much this this garnered attention, and uh, you know, and a number of news outlets were very interested in talking about it. And I think that speaks to yeah, exactly what you're saying, John. The importance of of our uh, natural heritage, and and thinking about you know educational opportunities through legislature is is actually kind of cool. Yeah, <laughs> and people people care a lot about dinosaurs, uh, and they're just a great way to get people excited about. The world around us, I think. So, and if, if this has gotten you excited about the, the dinosaurs of Massachusetts and Connecticut, because you're really hard, hard to sort of separate the two. Um, Unless you're a baseball fan. It's <laughs> easy to separate. Well, yes, that, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, but the, the, the same fossil bearing rocks show up in both states <laughs> along the Connecticut River, I guess is what I meant. But um, so if we've got people excited about this, I know we've mentioned a few places you can go, Dinosaur State Park, the, uh, the trackways near Holyoke, um, the, what's the Natural History Museum at? Uh, Amherst College. Amherst? Yeah. yeah, it's the Bineski Museum of Natural I, History, yeah. I've never been, it's been on my list for a long time to get to because it just sounds really cool. Yeah. Oh, and also put a little plug in for the University of Massachusetts Amherst because a number of researchers there kind of collaborate with the other five colleges and especially Amherst College Museum. So yeah, they're just, it's just a great little area for, for track research and mm -hmm. a burgeoning area for uh, maybe more uh, dinosaur skeletal fossil research if it can be found. Yes. <laughs> Uh, well, and I will, I will say that as someone who spends a lot, a lot of my research time in museum collections, part of me is really curious about, are there any bits and pieces of these that haven't been recognized locked up in a cabinet somewhere in, in Yale or in, in Cambridge at the Museum of Comparative Zoology at, at Harvard, both you know, major natural history museums. Could be. Uh, and I, I, having found lots of really cool things that no one had recognized the importance of in just random museum cabinets, I'd be really curious to see if, uh, if in future years, as people are poking around some of these museums, if they turn up new specimens of these. But I also agree, I'd be great to get people back out in the field and, 
seeing if we can find more of these things, especially Pedocosaurus, because man, it's such a tragedy. I know. We <laughs> just find a little more, you know, it's got to be out there. It does. But maybe, maybe now that it's the state dinosaur, people will, will actually start. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like, uh, we'll all have that search image in our minds. Exactly. <laughs> start exactly. going out in droves. <laughs> with po- proper permitting <laughs> yes of course yes i don't want to encourage people to go steal fossils from state or federal land but. yes well john this Lovely. has been really great i think this uh whole series is really fun and um i hope that your listeners uh are encouraged to look into their own natural history wherever they might live in the i hope so too elsewhere. it's yeah. a great thing to do while you're killing time stuck indoors during the pandemic uh, so yeah, and thank you for, for, for coming on here and thank you for, for being involved with this process of, of getting people excited about uh, the, the dinosaurs of Massachusetts. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for joining me on this voyage to the Valley of the Dinosaurs. Right after we stopped recording, Tara reminded me of a couple things we should plug. The first is the Springfield Science Museum in Springfield, Massachusetts home not only to some local fossils, but to a glorious, if dated, Tyrannosaurus statue. She also wanted to remind me to encourage any of you who are residents of the Bay State to contact your state legislator about voting for the resolution to make Podokosaurus the state dinosaur. As we talked about in the closing moments of our interview, your state's natural heritage matters and should be celebrated. And if you aren't from Massachusetts, spend some time exploring whether you're one of the states that doesn't yet have a state dinosaur or if you're one of the handful of states that doesn't even have a state fossil. If you do have one, great, you found yourself a pleasant rabbit hole to fall down to learn about your state's prehistoric past. If not, there's no reason why you couldn't spearhead a similar effort to the one Tara and I talked about today. As always, if you want to learn more, head over to the Voyage's website at voyagepod.wordpress.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, and if time allows, Please rate, review, like, and subscribe, all of which make it easier for people to find this podcast. This episode featured three works by John Philip Sousa, By the Light of the Polar Star, The Thunderer, and The Transit of Venus, which seemed appropriate given the Gilded Age setting for the story of Brontosaurus and our discussion of the state dinosaur vote. It opened with the London Symphony Orchestra playing Aaron Copland's Fanfare for the Common Man, written at the same time that Rudolf Zallinger was painting The Age of Reptiles, and a good musical accompaniment for the most monumental of all works of paleo art. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me for all the voyages to come. (laughs) ¶¶